The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Hello, everyone. Thanks for coming tonight. So, this may make some of you happy. Tonight we will be ending this three-month discussion of the 16 steps of Anapanasati, the Buddha's teaching on breathing in and breathing out. And for those who've been following along, you know that it's not actually about breathing in and out. That's just a convenient structure that the Buddha uses, right? Because that physicality of breathing in and out it's here and now. It's relatively a relatively concrete or an accessible experience in the here and now that we can be aware of. So the Buddha uses that context of the body breathing in and breathing out and the intimacy with that gross physical activity of breathing in and out. He uses that structure to study the mind. It creates kind of a container where the mind is basically studying the truth the way it is from gross to subtle. And that's a nice way to think of the 16 instructions. It's just the Buddha, after his own kind of deep understanding, learning of his own heart and mind, then conceptualizing what happened to him in a way that might be useful for other people. So the 16 steps is, how to train the mind to be aware of what's happening in the present moment, but starting with what's relatively gross, and then as we build competence and some momentum, to turn the attention to more subtle, more subtle, more subtle aspects of the present moment. And one of the most subtle aspects, right, the last set of four instructions, it's divided into four four instructions, right? So they're called... uh, now I'm forgetting the word. Tetrads. Thanks, kid. Yeah, so sets of four. The first four are really about the mind knowing the body. And when the mind knows the body without greed, without anger, there's a sense of calm. And as I've been saying, it's not that the body, the bodily problems, pain in the knee, for example, it's not like all that goes away. But what's happening is the mind isn't having a problem with the body. So the calm we experience with the fourth instruction is really realizing the mind, completely accepting, being intimate and accepting the body, and the fruit of that healing where the mind is okay with the body. And remember, the mind can only be okay with the body if it's intimate with the body undefended, allowing the sensations of the body to be the way they are, then that is expressed as a kind of pervasive calm, meaning the body isn't reacting to the mind having a problem with it because the mind doesn't have a problem with it. The mind's okay with the body. And so then the body expresses that by going, ah, You know how it is when you really loved a friend, 
partner, whatever, your dog, is like totally there, not judging you, not needing you to be different, we kind of go, ah, <laughs> like being held in that space. I still remember a few hugs I've gotten over this, you know, decades of my life where I, for whatever reason, I perceived, I felt that the person had no agenda but to love. It, it stands out when we're totally met, received, without any, the body, that person needing us to be different than we are. It's really healing. And so this is what's happening in this more simple, direct way with the body, with the mind meeting the body, but like 100% okay. And that, you know, and I've been talking about this in a linear way, and I've been saying that's not how life is. Life isn't linear, it isn't systematic, but it helps to learn the map that way. And then when you get competent, when you train in this way, then you just sort of, let it rip, and you'll see that the mind is drawing on different aspects of the map organically and nimbly, which is really more like life, right? So the mind has learned to be with this, the wildness of the body. Body is nature, actually. And the mind, the heart, has learned how to be intimate and relaxed and interested and trusting of the body. doesn't mean the body's perfect. And there's some real healing expressed as calmness in the body. Then the Buddha is inviting us to train, bringing the attention more specifically to the activity, the mental activity, thinking, emoting, intentions, motivations, perceptions. This is all a different aspect of what we call generally mental activity, right? Cognitive activity. But the Buddha is being very strategic because if I just started to be aware of my thinking, even with the calm I've gotten by being with the body in a skillful way, the thoughts are very seductive. Mental activity is very seductive. So the Buddha is very smart. He says, only pay attention to the pleasant feeling. So, pleasant mental feeling, the initial pleasant mental feeling that will be available for us is joy. turns out that joy, what the Buddha means by joy, piti, sometimes translated as rapture, that's the grosser form of mental happiness, not the more refined, but the more gross end of mental happiness is called joy, kind of more of a bright, energetic, sometimes buoyant, light, joyful interest, awe, right? hair standing up, whoa, that kind of feeling. But remember, before it's really strong, it's going to be not very strong, right? And we have to learn to see it, feel it, before it's fully developed because it becoming, joy becoming fully developed requires noticing it. In other words, the proximate cause for rapture and joy to become a really predominant part of what's showing up in the heart is noticing it and keeping it in mind. And that's what the Buddha is asking. So 
Let everything else, don't try to repress or get rid of anything else. Now we're being aware of mental activity. Be aware of that particular aspect of mental activity we call rapture or joy, that joyful interest, that sense of awe, that sense of lightness and wonder. However faint, however nondescript, can you keep it in mind through the duration of an inhalation? Can you keep it in mind through the... And that's why initially some people find it useful to use a mental prompt, like just saying the word or the words, experiencing joy as you breathe in. Experiencing joy as you breathe out can be a useful mental prompt. Just see if that's helpful for you. Don't feel like you need a mental prompt. Be pragmatic. If it helps keep it in mind, use it. If it doesn't, just do it silently without any mental prompt. Make sense? And that's true with any of these steps. You can use a mental prompt. You can use a phrase or a word to help remind the knowing mind what it's paying attention to. Because part of what mindfulness is, is knowing what's helpful to pay attention to now. Because it's not enough to be mindful, like to be aware, because I could spend a whole lifetime being aware of how mixed up I am. But I won't necessarily be wiser at the end of it. So it, it matters what we're paying attention to. So that's why we're learning this map that the Buddha gave us, and we'll see if we really study these 16 steps so we can do it more organically, you'll see that it really maximizes learning. The mind learns about the nature of the mind when it knows what's most helpful to pay attention to. And the Buddha, like anybody who's got a very, uh, who has developed a lot of wisdom, they've learned what's useful to pay attention to. And it's, it's like we're invited to check out, like, is that universal? Like, what that person, like Buddha, found to be useful, is that universally useful for this mind? And it's kind of worth checking out because a lot of the times we're just spinning our wheels. So when we get a, a kind of a very um, elegant set of instructions, why not check it out? Right? So joy, noticing how joy went just by keeping it in mind with some continuity, in-breath, out-breath, in-breath, out-breath, keep it in mind, the quality of happiness deepens, becomes more subtle. And so the next stage, you could say, of happiness, more subtle and more profound kind of happiness we call in Buddhism, sukha, which translates as ease, Ease of the heart, contentedness of the heart, happiness of the heart. But it's really that more resonant feeling like, oh, this happiness that I'm experiencing is what the heart has wanted. So therefore, the heart doesn't need to get somewhere because it's where it wants to be. That's the contentedness, right? This heart is okay with the way it is in the moment. That's what the ease is. Not needing the moment to be different is easeful. Ah, don't have to go anywhere, don't have to become anyone, 
you know, have to do something. Ah. So we're noticing that sense of ease of heart as you breathe in, as you breathe out, really keeping it in mind. There may be agitation, but that is allowed to be in the background or in the periphery. But in the foreground, the mind is interested in noticing any sense of ease, any sense of ease, keeping ease of heart in mind. And it's like, it's such an interesting practice because generally the attention, the knowing mind, wants to go to drama, right? It's like we have, the attention has like a magnetic attraction to any sort of drama. And that drama, the triggers are going to still be there, but we're training the mind not to pick it up, pick it up, but instead to be interested in something that's subtle, the ease of the heart then eventually it won't be so subtle. It'll be, some, in some moments, hopefully, it will really blossom and the ease will really fill the space of the mind, the heart, the body. Everything will apparently be touched by this pervasive sense of ease, just like with joy. Right? And that it's sort of a quenching of neurotic activity in the mind. Because so much of the neurotic worrying and planning and comparing mind and dredging up memories and thinking about the future is because the heart doesn't feel deeply ease. But when the heart feels ease in a deep way, there's no reason, there's no um, cause for a lot of mental activity to arise, to be triggered. And so that's the next two steps there is to notice mental activity and to notice the quieting of it. Not that I'm trying to make mental activity quiet down, calm down, but I'm, the mind has sort of drenched itself in ease, abides with some sense of ease. And from that perspective of being immersed in ease, I notice, yeah, there's some mental activity, thinking, worrying, planning, whatever, because that those habits have momentum and nobody is trying to stop the thinking, right? So there's thinking, but from the point of view of ease, there's no fueling of the thinking, the mental activity. So it just has a tendency to settle, quiet, mental activity calms down. And that for these next two steps, we're just noticing mental activity and noticing the natural quieting of the thinking mind. Less and less activity. And we're noticing that dispassionate relationship because now the mind is feeling good, easeful. So it's relationship to mental activity. I'm not feeling dependent on my thoughts, on my worries, on my planning, on my fantasizing to bring about ease because I already have it. So that non-dependence on mental activity turns out to cause mental activity to quiet down. But when I'm a person who needs to think about this or worry about this or plan this or consider or analyze 
when I'm in a dependent relationship on thought, we notice one thought always leads to another, or one thought leads to ten other, <laughs> right? And it never ends. So the key to quieting the mind down isn't to think about quieting it down, is to experience ease, a pleasant inner quality. When the mind has what it wants, it doesn't neurotically think. I mean, it makes so much sense. When the mind has the inner happiness, inner ease, that it's neurotically searching for by thinking about things like, why did that person treat me that way? What can I do to make myself happier? What's on TV tonight? What's in the fridge? Da-da-da, da-da-da. It's, it's just in a gross and very ineffective way, I'm trying to get myself to ease. And you get a little hit. Oh, there's this in the fridge. Ah. But it's very temporary, right? Because that remembering that that's in the fridge doesn't last long. Then I need another hit. And that all of that need, all that dependence is agitating. So the key is to find joy and ease that arises from seclusion, which is what we call it in Buddhism. The mind is secluding itself. It's retreating from neurotic activity. right? And then that relative simplicity of mind is joyful and then matures into easefulness. So that joy and ease isn't dependent on the image of what's in our fridge or what's on TV or what good thing might be the next sense hit, sense pleasure, right? Because it's the joy and ease of a mind that's simple, the mind that's not entangled with sense experience. So it's a more dependable mental happiness than the kind of happiness we get by remembering, oh, I'm going to be with my friends tomorrow and we're going to go play, right? I mean, that's a relatively wholesome memory or thought that I could generate if that's actually true. But it's also stressful to because ne- that thought, oh, I'll get to do this, it's not, it's not a dependable, like it depends on that thought being regenerated and not bringing all the other facts, like I've got to drive across town. My car's not very reliable, you know, and all the other component things. And that whatever, however nice it is, it will end. And then I'll need something else nice, right? So by doing this initial training of using the body and the breath to um, unhook from a lot of our neurotic mental activity, and to really feel that healing of body and mind, and to notice the joy and to notice the ease of that simple mind, and really keep that in mind. And then to feel a more profound quieting of the mind because of that ease, right? That kind of happiness really sets up insight, the deepening of understanding. Because that mind that's quiet and not dependent on external things 
when that mind looks at phenomena, because it's not hungry, because it's not needy, it sees more clearly the way things are. So then that next set of four, the third tetrad, right? The first one is looking at the body and bringing about the healing of the mind and body. The next set of four is looking at mental activity and calming, quieting mental activity. And then the third is really more intuitive. We're intuiting the nature of the mind, or you could say the nature of the heart, the silent, empty, still, space-like nature of the knowing and feeling heart, knowing and feeling mind. Right? Not the activity, not what's being known in the mind, what's being felt in the heart, but the heart, the space, the nature of the heart and mind itself. Now we intuit this, right? Because we're using the knowing mind to know the mind, right? To know the knowing mind. You can't really know the knowing mind as an object because then it's an object being known by the knowing mind. But like in this room right now, we can know there's the space of this room, but I can't really see or hear or touch the space of the room. I can touch the lectern. I can touch my knee. I can see my knee. Right? But I can't really grasp space, the space of the room, as an as a object that's being known by the knowing mind. But I can very much, can't we all right now, intuit the space of the mind? I'm sorry, the space of the the room, right? And we could, it's subtle, but we could train our mind to keep it in mind. Like even as I'm talking and you're listening and later in our discussion time, we could, even in the midst of daily life, train our mind to be interested in the space of the present moment, the space of here and now, the space of knowing. Not just what's being known, but the knowing that allows for objects to be known. And you see, it kind of changes the mind's perspective. Now, when we do it in a more meditative way, breathing in, aware, experiencing, the space of the mind. Breathing out, experiencing the space of the mind. Remember, you can use the word heart here. Mind, heart, same thing. Here and now, present moment. And really sensing there's something spiritually beautiful about keeping this in mind. That's the next step there. And one way to talk about why that's so beautiful is The space of the mind, the space of the knowing mind, the space of this room is never stained by what happens in the room. So my knowing mind has known some really difficult times, probably true for you too, and my knowing mind has known some really beautiful times, but the knowing mind remains unstained by the beautiful and difficult experiences that have come my way. 
like a mirror, right? We had a nice, big, beautiful mirror here, and we put something disgusting in front of the mirror. It would perfectly reflect that, that the mirror mirror wouldn't be contaminated or harmed just because it was reflecting something disgusting, like dog poop. Or you could put something really amazingly beautiful in front of the mirror. But it, it won't get disoriented because there's something so beautiful. You know, one of the Kardashians could come up and be reflected by the mirror, right? But the mirror remains unaffected no matter what comes and goes in front of the mirror. It's just... And, and we the wisdom intuits this about the nature of the mind. There's something about the nature of the heart and the mind right here, always here and now, that because it's subtle and because our orientation is always toward the objects that are being known, right? that's just the habit of the mind. But now we're training the mind to, in, to intuit, to get interested in the nature of the mind. And then it begins to deeply appreciate that this truth of the mind, the nature of the mind, that always remains unstained, uncontaminated, free, right? And that's that next step there. So the first one is noticing the space of the mind, gladdening or appreciating the space of the mind, space of the heart, quieting, stilling, concentrating the space. And this is really perfecting, like that we're all we're noticing is the essential and inherent freedom of mind as I breathe in, as I breathe out. I'm noticing that subtle truth that the mind remains unstained. There's some aspect of the mind. Now, when difficult experiences happen, they leave an impression. But that impression isn't the knowing mind. That's an object that is being known, being felt. So one of the things we're distinguishing is the objects from the mind that is knowing the objects. That's subtle. And just to kind of be clear, don't imagine you're going to really totally, completely separate the object from the mind that knows the object. So we have this life, this mind-body, right? And this dynamic of being me is something being known. But I can train the knowing mind to be interested in intuiting the knowing as opposed to what's being known. And that's really what we're doing with this third set of four instructions. Experiencing the space of the knowing mind, appreciating it, stilling it, so that all we're noticing is not the activity of the mind, even subtle activity like this is so beautiful. The mind is so quiet. Right? So we're sort of merging, you could say, with the beauty of the knowing mind, with the stillness, the silence, the nature of the knowing mind to remain undisturbed by what's being known. Right? So we're, we're keeping that in mind to such a degree that the mind realizes that 
it sort of it's has that in mind to such a degree that selfing or any kind of dualistic notion is dropped. So there's a real sense of freedom, even as we move, even as we begin to notice. So the first of those four steps, just experiencing the nature of the mind, there's already a lot of freedom and peace and just intuiting the space of the mind. And one of the fruits of years and years of practice is that sense of the nature of the mind doesn't go away, even in the midst of difficult daily activity. It's like right in the middle of the entrenched warfare of our relationships and haggling around this and that and dealing. Someone had to, you know, in the cold morning had to change their tire in in the parking lot, you know, and how the tire got frozen. You know, just those frustrating things that happen to us. But whenever the mind remembers to notice all of this difficult activity of being a human being in relationship with life is happening in this vast, silent, empty, still, undisturbed space of the knowing mind. That both mysteriously are true. I got a life, I've got an aching body, I have relationships that don't really work perfectly. We live in an unjust world where people are suffering because of injustice, because of being treated unfairly. And we're part of that. Right? And in a very deep way, it's okay. And that's not an insult. That insight isn't an insult to the very real suffering that people are experiencing. That somehow... They don't contradict. We don't have to choose, like, oh, the truth is the messiness of the world or the truth is the still, silent, peaceful, uncontaminated mind. That somehow they work together. (laughs) They don't contradict each other, even though in language it seems to. And so that's a profound insight to see and to develop that insight about the nature of the mind. And, and it happens hundreds, thousands of times. Little glimpses, bigger glimpses. But what it develops is this, it helps the mind understand suffering. Because now, like having had lots of little insights, some big and lots of little insights, then when my mind, when my heart is all entangled, and the suffering seems personal, something happens immediately in my mind now, like, yeah, this suffering, this weight, this oppressive squeeze in my heart, when, the, when I experience that, what arises is like, this isn't what it appears to be. It appears that somebody's suffering, me. It appears that I'm really unhappy. It appears that I don't want things to be the way that they are, right? I see it, I experience it, and the mind, the wisdom of the mind is really suspicious. This isn't what it appears to be. Yeah, I'm suffering, 
but it isn't what it appears to be. See, that mind is curious. What am I not seeing? What am I not feeling? What's not being seen clearly here? What's being missed? So the fruit of having a lot of insight here is when (coughs) suffering inevitably arises for us or for others, the mind gets interested. Normally, with you know an untrained mind, and we experience suffering, we complain, we blame. I mean, we do things that are basically not very helpful. But with more and more insight, you'll notice the change is you're curious about suffering because this personal, subjective experience of suffering is less and less trusted as reality. It's seen more and more as an appearance or a mirage even. Like, oh yeah, it looks like I'm suffering. It looks like I'm really hurting. It looks like this is too much. It looks like it shouldn't be this way. But I don't believe the appearance. And it really uh, creates this strong desire want to deepen understanding. And we take up the Buddha's last four instructions. So this is the last night for a while, maybe a couple years, before I'll go through this again. But you might want to just keep working with this. And as most of you know, there's resources on our webpage that you can continue the study and you can meet with me or with Shelley or other teachers here to talk about these steps as you continue to work with them on your own. But the last four instructions we can do all day long, every day, formally in our meditation time, but informally all day long. And as I mentioned last week, it's the Buddha addressing the question, what, when we keep it in mind, naturally, organically leads to the heart letting go? What do I need to keep in mind that leads to the heart letting go of the wrong conclusions? that this suffering belongs to me. As uh, a later Buddhist teacher, Saint said, Buddhaghosa was his name, he lived in the third century CE. Um, Suffering is, but no sufferer can be found. Suffering is, but no sufferer can be found. So what the Buddha says, I mean the short answer for these last four instructions is, When you pay attention to the way it is, letting go happens. When you pay attention to the way you think it is, reactivity and suffering happens. When when the heart connects, sees and feels and understands things as they are, the very organic and natural uh, happening is letting go. Nobody lets go. No person, no individual awakens, becomes enlightened. Letting go happens. The heart's, the unshakable release of the heart happens. But it happens as a natural, and you can say impersonal process. But there are lawful supporting causes for the releasing, the liberation of the heart. And that is the heart being aware, being intimate with the way it is. And in particular, 
not the surface, but the underlying nature. And the underlying nature of this moment, any moment of our life, is that it's in motion. So let's just see as I'm talking, right? can we keep in mind that whatever we're aware of right now, the sound of my voice, the meaning that comes from these words, the feeling of your body, the seeing, the hearing, whatever, can you keep in mind the fluid and therefore insubstantial, changing, uncertain, unreliable, ungovernable, insubstantial, I'm trying to think of all the similes, nature of just the physical, mental reality. It's always in motion. We have never experienced any phenomena, any object of experience that wasn't a flow, a movement. But our thinking mind, our conceptualizing mind, quickly substitutes the immediacy of experiencing with an idea. I'm at common ground. So there it appears to the mind that things are static. Like I'm, as an individual, a static thing. Me. And you are you. And here is here. So we have this world of nouns, of fixed things. But it's just not our subjective experience. And we've learned, unfortunately, to trust our idea or the picture our thinking constructs more than our direct subjective experiencing. So what the Buddha says is, train your mind to orient around your direct, immediate, subjective experiencing, in particular, the changingness of everything. Keep that in mind, keep it in mind, keep it in mind. When you keep change in mind with enough integrity and continuity, the heart, the wisdom, naturally with everything begins to relate to it with dispassion. There's nothing here for me. I can't own it, can't keep it. Like I like popcorn, you know, with salt and butter. But even when that image comes to mind, like, I could make popcorn when I go home, right? Because I've trained my mind, I can't help but remember, and then it will be over. And even well before it's over, it won't be fun. It's only really fun for a certain amount of time, and then it's not fun. And it's the same with absolutely everything else. So this is what I mean about keeping change in mind. Even if it will be really nice to go to bed tonight, get in our warm bed, let's say, but inevitably, Monday morning comes around. Or we do this, or we do that. So even if you have a lot of privilege and comforts in your life, you can't count on them. Right? There's nothing that is reliable. There's nothing that's governable. There's nothing that's substantial. It's just one thing onto the next, onto the next, onto the next. And the more we keep that in mind, right, because it's always about what we keep in mind, what we pay attention to, the more dispassion arises. Dispassion is realizing nothing is ultimately satisfying to the heart. 
nothing satisfies the heart except letting go. That's the, that turns out to be the refuge, but we're not there yet. We're still at the point, nothing is satisfying, nothing is satisfying, nothing is satisfying. And then the mind, wisdom starts to keep that in mind. So first we keep impermanence in mind, change. Then we keep the seeing the unsatisfactoriness, the dispassionate, nothing here for me. We're having a really nice, I mean, I'm talking about the good end of things. We're having a really nice interaction with a friend. But because I can't really own it and make it last forever, I'm noticing how unsatisfac- uh, unsatisfying it is. Right? It's just interesting to notice that. Now, we don't want to notice that. Like when you're watching a nice TV show, you don't want to notice in 10 minutes it will be over. And however much joy I'm deriving is immediately tainted by noticing that it will be done soon. Right? That it won't really take care of my need for entertainment because it won't last. So that then we keep that dispassion, unsatisfactory in my, satisfactoriness in mind, and then it leads to more and more moments of cessation where the mind, the heart, gives up on selfing. The whole habit, however deep and pervasive, however much momentum the habit of taking life, taking experience personally, the mind has seen the underlying truth of impermanence and unsatisfactoriness uh, long and deeply enough that for a moment it experiments being, being awake, being present, but without projecting the sense of it belonging or referring back to me. It just isn't there in a moment. And we call that a moment of cessation. The mind has ceased for a moment of selfing, of constructing like, me being the knower, having an experience. It just ceases. We don't know that experience until we start recognizing a moment of cessation where we're realizing the mind where there isn't any of that self-centered drama, any grasping. And then we start connecting the dots. Oh yeah, if I keep impermanence in mind, I keep unsatisfactory in mind, I'll realize more and more moments of the cessation. And that is what uproots. That's what leads to the letting go. We're letting go of only the habit of self-centered drama. That's the only thing. Life, whatever life is, this sort of activity of body and mind will continue. But by keeping these three things in motion, letting go happens. Now, the question is, is this true for this mind or that mind, right? Are we interested enough in learning the map, healing the mind's relationship with the body, healing the mind's relationship with mental activity, healing and intuiting how the mind relates to the nature of the mind itself, the mind that, the knowing mind that isn't stained, so we get a sense of freedom. That's what this third set is about. Because without a direct taste of freedom, 
we have no incentive to do this work. Because I could be eating popcorn instead of contemplating how it will change, how it is changing, how it won't satisfy me. Because right? that kind of feels like a bummer to keep those things in mind. But when we know the taste of freedom, we're willing to do that work. Because freedom is like real, that taste of freedom is realizing I've been carrying a 100 pound backpack and I just dropped it. I had no idea I was carrying this thing. This is what the heart has been looking for, not popcorn, not nice experiences. It really wanted the weight off its back. It wanted the release of the heart. But all it knew was pleasant sense experience, so it took what it had because it thought that's all that's available. So we really need this taste of freedom to have a sense of what the path is all about. To be honest, we really don't know much about the spiritual path until we start intuiting the nature of the mind through these experiences where we realize, like it can happen in more ordinary experiences where, you know, when you're playing and you get absorbed in the play, whatever it is, could be making love, could be knitting, you know, it could be doing whatever, that your mind just gets absorbed in and you drop a lot of the selfing for a little bit, right? And you get, the thing is you need to be curious about what happens so you don't mistakenly think there's something about knitting. Because it wasn't the knitting, it was the absence of self-centered drama that was so refreshing and liberating. And that's what we have to see with these normal or more ordinary moments of absorption where the mind is absorbed in just being as opposed to constructing and living inside of some drama. So that's it for me, but we have a few minutes. It'd be nice to hear your own reflections for the last six minutes. Remember to stay to the very end. It's really polite to not leave during the discussion time or end on time. So questions you might have or comments from your own practice about these 16 steps, these ways of training the mind. Anything come to mind? Yeah, pass it back. I'd like you to talk more about the unsatisfactoriness because I find when I do something and like eating a good meal or something, it's very satisfying. I will eat to a point of fill, fill, and it was enjoyable while I was eating, and I'm satisfied when it's done, and I feel very good, or um, I'll make some tea, and it's very satisfying while I'm drinking it, and I'm done, and I feel very satisfied, and I, I don't have unsatisfactoriness over things like that. Right, it I might take. be like for people who have really healthy habits, and hopefully in some parts of our lives we do, right? And probably in other parts of our life less healthy. But even in those places where we have cultivated really wholesome ways of relating, and, and it's really useful to do that in places like food, like in the precepts, you know, around anywhere we might harm other beings, 
anywhere in life where we're receiving or taking, that that's really wholesome. Any place, uh, anything around sexual activities, really clean and wholesome, leaving a good taste like you're describing around our speech or words, around what we consume, like the intoxicants. We, so all of these sort of ordinary ways that we relate to sense experience and relate to each other, ideally we will have cultivated really clean, wholesome habits that kind of is taking the big picture in mind so that we're not causing ourselves and anybody harm. But even with the habits being really good, saying that it's not satisfying doesn't mean that it's bad. It just means that the ego remains hungry. So even when you eat with a lot of mindfulness, right, and you really uh, are there and listening and responding appropriately, to whatever degree there's an anxious, unsafe ego activity, that it won't be completely satisfied by eating in that wholesome way. It will be on to the next thing. And even the subtle unsatisfactoriness of needing to eat in a skillful way is a squeeze in the heart. Like you see this about people who have a nature in their personality to be kind of disciplined in a good way. I'm not talking about in a neurotic way, but even in a disciplined in a good way where you really have been burnt enough that you've trained yourself to kind of behave because you don't want to be burnt by life. But we're still there's a subtle suffering of needing to be good. Right? And that suffering only goes away not by, like we can't really fix it by becoming gooder (laughs) in terms of how we eat or how we relate to others. It only can be fixed by deepening wisdom that realizes that good or bad, my behavior, my actions don't refer back to anybody. And that's that deeper, that's what's ceasing, the habit of presuming my actions refer back to a me. That habit can be dropped. It's a very subtle but pervasive habit. Now, there's a lot of work we can do that's very useful to do, like cleaning up how we eat, cleaning up how we relate to other human beings, right? That will bring a lot of space, just the happiness of living with a lot of integrity. But it's it's not the end of the practice. It actually supports a deeper awakening so that being good isn't a self-project. We still want to be good, but we don't want to do it as a self-project. And that teasing that out is a more subtle practice. Does that make sense? It's okay if it doesn't. (laughs) Then what is the relinquishment as opposed to the cessation? Yeah, I mean, I think those four steps of intimate 
the word that's used actually is contemplating impermanence, contemplating dispassion or the unsatisfactoriness, contemplating sensation, contemplating letting go or relinquishment sometimes translated, right? We're, We're basically setting in motion like, because now the mind is on fire with wanting to understand, wanting to... Basically, the mind, the heart has linked understanding deeply with that flavor of release, that flavor of freedom. Right? It's re- that's the correlation the mind has made. When the mind understands, letting go happens. So think of those four steps as the acting out of that wholesome desire to want to understand, to connect with reality, that it's changing, that nothing satisfies. It's not that the world is bad because it doesn't satisfy. It's that there isn't anybody to satisfy. The idea that there's an ego or somebody that needs to be satisfied is why things are fundamentally unsatisfactory. It's not that the problem is with the food or the habit of how I eat food. The problem is there's nobody there to be satisfied by the meal. So that misconnection, that uh, distorted sense that I'm eating in order to create a satisfying experience for me causes the stress. So what ceases is that wrong idea. So there's nothing inherently wrong. It's quite beautiful to see how people ritualize all the activities of their life as long as it's not a self-project. And you know the difference, like somebody who has a nice, I see it in myself, because I tend to be a little bit of a, uh, I like my house really clean and organized. And I see when, like there's something beautiful when the house is organized, but when when there's a me who needs the house organized, it's neurotic. And you can ask my wife, (laughs) because she experiences the brunt of how that's unhealthy. But when the activity of keeping the house organized is arising as an expression of joy and generosity, right? there's nothing heavy about having a clean house. But if it's there because I'm afraid of chaos, well, then you know, it may be better than having the house chaotic, but there's some tightness in the cleanliness. So that's the thing that we're talking about with your comment. Uh, we should probably end here. It's 8.30. Thanks for that and for coming tonight. Let's just take 30 seconds or so and let go of the words. Just enough time to take one or two breaths together. Sensing the space of the mind. Thanks for coming, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.